once again, the point of this work is for how she's developing a worldview. He's developing a consistent way of looking at the world from a Jewish standpoint. And what he did was, and I in the uh, I haven't given you this, this sheet, um, more of a thing I was going to give it at the end, but I basically drew a mind map of everything we've done in this task so far. Because what, what Rav Hirsch has done is he opened up with a question. He opened up with a question about what is the value of a what what is the what is the value of Judaism? And the way he answered that question was to ask the question about what, how is Judaism valuable to me is the wrong question. The right question is, what is Judaism trying to present? What is Judaism's own worldview from its standpoint? If I adopt the way I phrased it here, if we adopt the Jewish worldviews, what do we see? And then looking at the world through those lenses, is that a worldview I want to adopt? Rather than looking at me and how Judaism is helping me in different areas of my life, what is a Jewish worldview? That's what in German they call it a Weltanschauung. What is the Jewish way of looking at the world? And the only way you can find that out is the way he suggests. Let's look at the Torah. And that sounds super, super, like that sounds really superficial. Let's look at the Torah. But he says, read the Torah as if it's talking to you about how the world really is. Even if we have to suspend your scientific mind or your historical mind, let's see how Judaism describes the world. And if we look at the world through that lens, what purpose emerges from that? And that's but just to see how he plays it out here. He says, the first thing we do is we look at the natural world. And he describes the natural world from his point of view, how Judaism looks at the natural world. He then moved to humanity and the purpose of humanity. But that's not where history ends. History then continues from a biblical standpoint. We have Adam and Eve and that test and what happened there. We then take it to the next stage, which is Cain and Abel. That's the next part of the story. What's that teaching us about the progression of humanity? So the way I, 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 I structured it out here is the first stage, which was the first letter or the second letter, third letter for us, created sorry, interrelated system and ecosystem of nature where everything corresponds to, everything corresponds and everything depends on everything else and all is blessed. Do we recognize that when we talk about creation, we're talking about an interconnected ecosystem where Hashem describes it as being blessed. That's the world. And I, I, I'm trying to, I don't know the right language to describe. He's asking us to, how does the world look if I adopt this vision? If I adopt the natural world and I look out at the natural world and I adopt the vision that this is what the world is made out of, I look at the very different world, just naturally. If I look at the world through a scientific lens, or I look at it through this lens, a scientific lens, Things are dead. Not that they're not alive and moving around, but there's no meaning behind them. There was nothing that put them there. But if I look at the world through this lens, I already start to develop a bit of a narrative. There's an interconnected ecosystem. Then humanity comes to the scene. And humanity is asked to choose, with his language, choose to do that which nature does naturally. Nature gives and takes without any expectation. Humanity is asked to do that through its own free will. And the, me the metaphor of a, um, a symphony is used. The advantage of the human being is that he can add his own individuality. He can choose to do that which nature does naturally. By choosing to do what nature does naturally, there's risk, but there's also the greatest beauty. Humanity can choose to do it. 
we then move on to the idea of Adam and Eve and what Adam and Eve are adding to the story. They, the way I phrased it here, just to sideline before we got onto the next letter, man's uniqueness, I, the language is terrible, but we'll have to go with me. Man's unique, uh, man is unique. God depends, God requests that he chooses to do that which all does naturally, risk and greatest potential. And with the language that we use to describe this in the Torah is the work and guard. That's the purpose of humanity. Purpose of humanity is to work and guard. That's how Rav Hirsch says, if I look at the Torah, that's the narrative it presents me with. We have then have Adam and Adam and Eve that are, chose, are told not to eat from a certain tree. And the principle that Rav Hirsch draws out of that is that the Torah is telling us not that everything is beautiful is good. If I only did the good because I found it beautiful, on some level, that would only be self-service. The first commandment to the humanity is to tell them that no, not everything that is beautiful is good. And now we see the sort of the first moral failure of humanity, the two primary vices, which is what we have called in Hebrew, Tither and Gaiva. It was beautiful to look at, and they wanted to be like gods. Arrogance and what and well, you would use a Tither, desire that led man astray. In which case you had this ideal world, then man is put into a garden. And just think of the metaphor there. We're all put into a garden. And not everything that is beautiful and sweet is good. And we know that in our own experience. That's the point of the Garden of Eden. They're put into a world and they're told not everything that is beautiful is good. There are certain things that are beautiful that are not good. And they're sweet that they're not good. That is the beginning of, well, mankind fails in that. And now you have Hashem revealing himself in the Torah as both father and judge. Man is kicked out of the garden, but Hashem is still the father and the father educates. So we now not only have the original principle of love and justice characterizing existence, we also have the education towards love and justice characterizing existence because man is taken out of the garden and put into the world. What's the next stage of the narrative? The next stage of the narrative is Cain and Abel. By limiting our access to pleasure, we go down here, both, both are, are restricted and thereby the pleasure we get in the world is lessened and the, um, and the fact that we are no longer in this garden takes away the pride. So you have both those things being tempered, both those things which forced humanity to stray being tempered. Rav Hirsch is looking at the story of the Torah as being one that is educating towards love and justice. Both those things that drew man away are being limited by being out of the garden. So when we say that man has to work the field, you know, a woman is all these things that are described at the beginning of Genesis, he's making sense of them. He's making sense of them not in like a random biblical history, but making sense of them as a grounded calling on what it means to be human. Then Cain and Abel. What was the story with Cain and Abel? Cain became obsessed with his work. But wait a minute. Working was part of the education, but it can go wrong. It's supposed to be an educational tool, but you can become obsessed with the educational tool. In which case, it can backfire. The way he describes it here, this is the last thing we did, but like all tests, it can go wrong. He connected to the ground and thereby it became those two sort of, let's call those, those two fundamental vices that the, the desire and the pride come into play again. And then we have the first murder. So the first murder of Cain and Abel, it gives meaning to these stories in a very deeply psychological way. The first failing of Adam and Eve has meaning to it in relationship to the ultimate goal of humanity. They gave in to the idea that it was beautiful, so it's good. They had a purpose in being there and they failed. Then God takes them out of the garden. And the idea of Cain and Abel, Cain fails. 
because he identifies with the land. So this is giving biblical history more meaning, not just as an interesting idea, but as a way to look at the world and thereby as a way to look at our individual purpose in the world. But we haven't got individual, we've got very broad. We're still talking about humanity in general. And then we have the Cain, we have the idea of the Nephilim, which is basically, I'm not exactly sure, but then we have the, the time of Enosh, which is described in the Tyra as when they called out the name of God. That's the language that's used because humanity started to degrade once again. So in, in, a, in a weird way, you have this ultimate ideal that's being described. And the reason why this is relevant to the person he's speaking to, he's speaking to someone who's asking him to understand the purpose of Judaism, to find the purpose of why am I here in this world? He says, if we look at the biblical narrative and the story of the Tyra as a way of looking at the world, we, we start to understand that humanity was at a stage where it was supposed to stay and mankind continued to be fair. What do we have next from a biblical standpoint? You have the flood. The flood takes place. One family stands strong, let's say, and then you have the Tower of Bovel. And at that point, things begin to change. Why did God split up the, the, the what, you know the Tower of Babel story? That's what we're gonna look at in this week's letter. The short letter, but it's just the precursor to the Jewish people. Because if I'm looking for the purpose of the Jewish people, there's a context to that question. Why do Jews exist? The way this is describing it is that it's not an idea. Mankind messed up and continually messed up. Thereby the concept of the Jewish people became necessary. In an ideal world, there wouldn't be a Jewish people, but mankind failed. Thereby the concept of a Jewish people needed to come into play. To draw back that original goal. Thereby, once again, we, we spoke about in this week's parish the idea of a kingdom of priests. What are we trying to draw people to? There is an ideal utopic future when a Jewish people say we're looking for Mashiach to come, but isn't a time when Jewish people become kings. It's a time when the world becomes united in relationship to Hashem. That's the calling of the prophets. What do you mean, united in a goal? It's taking us back to the ultimate, the original goal. The original goal is that we were all under Hashem. The Jewish people are there to educate humanity back towards that role, either as we will see through our actions or our history. Makes, makes sense, everybody's good? It's a bit abstract, but let's just ground it in the actual uh, the letter. So the letter, and now he, he, this is the, the seventh or sixth letter, I can't remember. The sixth or seventh letter, which is basically, he's continuing the story of history through the lens of adopting this to understand the purpose of humanity from Judaism's point of view. I'm going to read it, but I'm, my reading's not that great. So if I read something that's not there, definitely correct me. The new generation, which should have learned to recognize God in holy and awe as judge, this was written a long time ago. The language is going to be slightly archaic. Master and savior, yeah. forgot soon this lesson. In its pride, it desired to establish itself as masters upon the earth. He's relating to the Tower of Bovel. He's making the story of the Tower of Bovel rather than an interesting biblical lesson. He's saying, I'm look, trying for this conversation to look at the world as if that actually happened. Do you see what I'm saying? And I say as if it actually happened, adopted as it actually happened, and it's part of the story of humanity. And thereby you look at the world through a different lens. And the reason why this is very useful in, the, in a contemporary setting is because anybody can do this exercise, even if they don't believe in Judaism. You can adopt Judaism's lens to see how it looks at the world. Um, just presented, uh, sorry, uh, masters upon the earth, just presented to it as a divine gift because of the power with which it rules over nature, 
it believes that it can dispense with God in establishing and maintaining a new life. That history, that, thus begins history. God no longer wills the destruction of humanity. What's he talking about there? God no longer wills the destruction of humanity, but its education after the flood. Excellent. Now, once again, that makes that flood story meaningful. And a person can ask the question like, what, didn't God know that that would happen? Right, that's a good question. But this is how Hashem is presenting the world to us. Hashem destroyed the world because it was so corrupt. But now the goal has changed. It's not destruction and start over. It's education towards the ends. By experience, he desired to train mankind to the knowledge of themselves and of him. Humanity must not sink again to deep degradation of the perished generation. Ma men must be dispersed. Okay, why? Now he's going to make that, once again, the reason why time is so profound, that dispersion is going to play a part in the education of mankind. So I'm just going to punish them. Okay, that's, 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 that's how we learn it as kids. But no, how is that related to the actual education of humanity? Lest the human species slowly spread over the earth and form a single family and the corruption of one part be quickly communicated to the whole. They must be dispersed in order that mankind may rejuvenate itself from its own midst. And when one race has gone through the stages of the sinful illusion, which weaken and corrupts mankind, and it's, what does that say? Elevated, exhausted, and unfit for the divine purpose, it shall yield its place to a stronger, heartier race, which shall begin a fresh, pure life. What's the purpose of, of, of history at this point? History shows Hashem split up the world. Why? Because that's a step towards the education of mankind. Because if mankind is all one, then there's no possibility of rejuvenation. If I'm not starting the story over again, and I'm just, what, I'm, what the way the Torah describes that Hashem is going to educate mankind towards a better place, mankind can't all be in the same place. Dispersion becomes necessary. Rejuvenation is only possible if you have desperate parts. You can't rejuvenate if you're all within the same family because one form will affect everything. Or one corruption, as he says, affects everything. Hence, dispersion becomes a tool in mankind's education. It becomes part of the education of mankind rather than just a punishment. Punishment is so arbitrary. There's a purpose to the dispersion. It allows us to look at biblical history through a new light. And the rejuvenation happens when mankind splits up. And the splitting up with mankind allows each stage to go through its, its height and its form and another thing to take its place. But he's going to make, um, he's going to make more sense of it. Mankind must be scattered, must distribute itself amongst the different regions of the earth in order to, it, sorry, order that the most divergent and contrary faculties of the human mind may find in nature needed opportunities for development in order that the experience become full and complete. So he's drawing the idea that different places have different educational values. The person from France will grow up in a different way than the person from Zimbabwe, and they will add something to the human story. It's not random and it's not meaningless. There's a purpose for where, and we experience this, different people of different climates have different perspectives. It's not like which one's right and which one's wrong. There's often different perspectives that are needed in a full-bodied humanity. In order to re render the plan of education possible, the earth will reconstitute after it has been laid to waste and desolate, diversified, sorry, 
diversified as regards its soil and climate, the diverse into various continents and lands, by seeds and rivers, by mountains, by deserts. This diversity of the earth was by the divine plan intended to profoundly influence man, vainly fancying himself master of the earth and to affect even to their most innermost characteristics, his body, his opinions, his habits, his passions, and his language. Thus, should a broad and help me here, experience become possible. This experience should make him worthy of God and of himself, should teach him to recognize the supremacy of the dominion of God over nature and human life, should cause him to realize that the task of man is higher than mere possessions and joy. The multiple experiences that humanity will experience, the multiple worlds that humanity will, it will experience, thereby we will force, the way he's presenting, will force man to reflect on who he is, who God is, and also in terms of your own experience, when you see other people from around the world, when you see different ways of looking at the world, it gives you a, per a, a good way of describing it. A broad person is a person that, people come up with different ideas to express this. They say, what's the cure for bigotry? Travel. Travel is a cure for bigotry. Why? Because when you spend time with other people, you realize that they're also doing their best in a different environment. Thereby, travel, we can experience as being educational in a very contemporary sense of the word. The way he's describing that as a global sense of the word. That's the way that Hashem orchestrated history. Yeah. In a like, practical sense, like the way I'm imagining what you're saying is that like the fact that there's such a diverse array of like just people and like ways of life and ways of thinking is that kind of suggesting that when you see that there's like so much out there, it's kind of saying, I, I know so little, like there's so much more. Because it's, I'm trying to find a connection like between, like I met, I like the idea of like, a variety of people like different types of Jews like different like uniqueness but like I don't understand how it like goes to like tell man that you shouldn't possess and so if you take it in the context of the whole power of Bovel which was an expression of power they had power they had might and then they were dispersed in that context it makes sense that the dispersion was a reaction to this obsession with power and thereby what happens when you are dispersed and you're fragmented you don't have that power um, so I suppose that's the relationship, the idea of uh, um, power being the end. But I think he's going to develop. I, I hear the gap that you're talking about, the gap between how does this dispersion relate to the education? How does the dispersion relate to the idea that I recognize that power and dominion isn't the answer? He's going to develop that because he's going to look at not only the idea of that this happened then, but this becomes a tool of history, a tool, a, a tool of education in history. The, so from this time on, nation after nation enters the arena of history. Now he's looking forward. If, we'll, if we look at history and existence as being an education of mankind towards those principles that he opened up with, which was love and justice, the education of mankind back towards that original state. If the original state was one of love and justice, that giving and that, that structured order, which we call justice, and that reciprocal giving, which we call love, which we're supposed to mirror in humanity, which we're supposed to mirror the natural world, as human beings. History educates towards that. How so? Some new capacity, sorry, 
um, each presents some new power, some new capacity of the human intellect, meaning, once again, also recognize the universality in which he's speaking. Every nation has a value. He's not being ethnocentric here. There's a purpose and a value of every nation that comes to the scene, the Romans, the Greeks, the Phoenicians. There was a purpose to them. One of the, the uh, questions that the person answered, asked when he opened up his complaint was, from a Jewish standpoint, like, Look at all these other nations, what they've done. No, from a Jewish standpoint, there is a value to the nations of the world. We call it. There is a value to what the nations of the world give to humanity. Using their faculties in battle with nature and with each other, the purpose of obtaining wealth and enjoyment, gladly would nation retain for all eternity what they have get, uh, thus gained, but a higher hand upon which the conditions of their successes are dependent dashes what they thought indestructible by a slight breath of divine potency into ruins. And before the eyes of wandering humanity, it brings to pass from unnoticed trifles the most tremendous result. When people have succeeded in climbing to the summit of masteries of greatness, in this very greatness, nay, even because of it, it crashes down into destruction and forsakes the sphere of the activity for similar attempts of the succeeding generations. What was he saying? What happens in history? What's the cycle of history? You have really great successful nations, but they all... And it's not, it's not, they get up. And his point is, it's because of the success. Yeah. The example, there's many examples in history and the terrifying things that could be happening in the West today. When nations reach to a pinnacle, it's because of that pinnacle. When they get to that stage, they then crash. So the practical answer is that when a nation becomes super affluent, bizarrely enough, they open themselves up to fragmentation, they lose their values, they become obsessed with wealth, they become obsessed with uh, um, power and things, and thereby they become corrupt. And when they become corrupt and obsessed with power, they ignore the lower levels of their society. Is that what happened in the Greek? In Greek? It seems to be what happened, the best, the best example is Rome. Plenty but about... how, why would others, like, what, like in terms of like the Greek, for example? Well, how did the Greeks fall? Yeah. It was it to do with this? What? Well, as it depends how you, uh, I'm not exactly sure from the historical standpoint what caused the downfall of the Greeks. It's the Roman seem to have taken over. But a point where a nation becomes powerful, it sort of eats itself up. The Romans became corrupt. It, 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 not the Romans became corrupt. Rome was massive. But if people talk about what was the cause of the downfall of Rome, you might say Christianity, but one of the causes of the downfall of Rome was because it came so affluent, in which case the heads of the society became corrupt. And the head of society become corrupt, they start ignoring the lower parts of society, which creates a massive imbalance, which eventually causes its downfall. Throughout history, this is a, a lesson we know from history. You'll start to see what the value of the Jewish people will be in this conversation. A trend in history is that wealth and power won't cause your survival. It won't keep you going. What is the only nation in history that kept going? And was it because of wealth and power? So if we look Very at the Jewish... Sure. If you look at the Jewish people, once again, using the idea of an educational tool, he's not brought this up yet, he's going to bring that up in the next letter. What's the purpose of the Jewish people? Even if you aren't doing your job as a Jew, you're demonstrating by your mere existence, power, might, and stuff don't hold you through history. Everything becomes either, and thereby when we start talking about the mitzvahs in the Torah, we'll start talking about the idea how either the mitzvahs in the Torah are living out love and justice in the world, or they're educating towards love and justice. And every mitzvah fits into that category, one category or another. Either living out justice in the world, living out love in the world, 
or educating towards it. If it's that's every mitzvah in the Torah, we'll feed back to this ultimate goal. One, one, one second. In which case, if we go back to our original question, which was, right, what is Judaism's goal from its point of view? How does how does Judaism facilitate that goal? And is that goal a noble goal? What he would say at this point is, I'm starting to talk about what Judaism's goal is from its point of view. Judaism's goal from its point of view is a vision of humanity, of, of, of an existence that's predicated on love and justice. And humanity didn't, the human condition didn't allow for that. They fell. In which case, the next stage is to educate man back to love and justice. For history, and what's the other tool, which we're going to discuss next week? Jewish people. Those are the two tools that Hashem uses in the world to educate humanity back to that original state. In which case, how do the mitzvahs in the Torah facilitate that? Well, when I say how do the mitzvahs in the Torah facilitate the goal of Judaism, without articulating a goal of Judaism, I can't answer that question. But now I can start answering that question. What's the goal of humanity? What's the goal of Judaism? To make a world, and just let's, let's quote the prophet inside, he's going to do it in a minute, but I'll do it over here. And he shall judge amongst, judge amongst the nations of the world, and he shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not make sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. From Yeshaya. We don't get very, uh, people, that, the, 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 the Nevi'im were the ones who, according to that utopic future, and that utopic future is one where humanity would be the end of time, or whenever we, as, as, as through either history or through uh, um, the example of the Jewish people, we get that messianic vision. But that messianic vision is a vision that's bringing us back to the original, where there was love and justice in the world. And it sounds very abstract, love and justice. What does that mean? Well, that's how Rav Hirsch looks at the world being predicated on. And as I said, we can use from a language for that. What, what is the from a language you can use to describe that? If you want to have more religiously loaded language, you could say doing the will of Hashem in the world. What are the goals of Hashem in the world? When you say a kiddush Hashem, it means you're living out the goals of Hashem in the world. From his point of view, these are the goals of Hashem in the world. It, using from a language, chesed and din. Hashem created the world on chesed, on a foundation of chesed. This sort of language of chesed is love. It's that giving when you don't demand, when, when it's not owed to you. And that's how Hashem relates to us. So, just to, to, to finish off this, uh, oh yeah, you had a question, sorry. No, I was just wondering, it's the ironic stereotype Jesus is modern, right? So that's very historical, because we, we, had, we, we, uh, we were money lenders. Yeah, meaning it's ironic, because like, I mean, if that's the point of what we represent, it doesn't seem to be what we actually represent in the eyes of most, like, you know, it's yep. not as if that's like we're the beacon of, of lack of money and wealth in the eyes of, of other societies, we're kind of the beacon of money. For sure. But I would also posit to say that when a person looks at the Jewish people in terms of charity, we are a beacon in that respect. There's nothing, char it, and it, it, it's to Jewish people and their, 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 eco, their, their, their microcosm that they've created it can be looked at as a bastion of love and justice. The amount of, I mean, even just listening today and yesterday, I got two messages, one for Atsala and one for uh, charity for abuse victims. And I, and I gave stock at each one of them. But what I mean by that is that that's part of my life, not because I'm a, well, I'm, a, I'm part of that society where I'm encouraged to give. Now, obviously on some level that should also expand outwards, but purely by example, Israel as a country now, we're now, free, we're now free amongst the nations of the world. Israel 
on one level, is demonized by the world. On the other level, it is a beacon of a moral state. Now, obviously, people hold us to a double standard. Yes, all that being said, from this point of view, maybe they should hold us to a double standard because more is expected of us. Yeah. Yeah. If it is that the Jews have survived without state, is it fair to say that because Rome and ancient Greece have gone, that Rome and ancient Greece culturally have gone? So I, I think it's more that there's no distinct Roman people anymore. There is a distinct Jewish people. It's not, we're not the only people that are still alive. I mean, there's the, the Chinese people, there's the distinct China, there's the, um, I think like the gypsies are also pretty old. But from our point of view and from the point of view of the Jews, there was a huge amount screaming against our survival. Everything seemed to imply we should no longer exist. And we still do. And the people try and give explanations for it, for sure. People can try. But my point being, from a pure, from his, the way he's presenting it now, he's not giving a philosophical argument. He's saying, if we look at history, this is the way the Torah is presenting the world. As being predicated on a principle, humanity being introduced to the scene as carrying that out, and humanity failing. And thereby, the education back to that original state. It's not an argument. It's more like a presentation of a worldview. And the point that he's saying to the guy reading this is as, you opened up with saying, how does Judaism facilitate my happiness? And it, in a way, he's saying, if we just stop here and I ask you a question, what is a more noble calling? What I'm describing with your pursuit of happiness. I think the way he's describing the world, this is a worldview I would like to adopt. Now, a person can discuss ask afterwards, is it true? That's a, that's, a, that's a genuine conversation. But before you even get there, this is a noble way of looking at the world. That's what he's presenting. Just to, to finish it off, um, the time must and will come for the um, inevitable results of all those efforts to clearly manifest in the minds of the... Does anybody else want to continue? Please. Hevel, yeah? Then, and then that's where he quotes Yeshaya, and then the mountain, at the end of days, the mountain of the Lord will be firmly established among the peaks of the mountains and borne by the hills, and to it all people shall stream. And there shall go a great, shall go great nations and speak, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us the ways and he will, and we shall walk in his path. 
That's the vision. That's the way of her sees the natural world and the purpose of humanity in history and the ultimate goal and, and where humanity is going. But then we have a question. That's not the end of the story. The story didn't end with the Tower of Babel and nations rising and falling. We have the introduction of the Jewish people into history. How does that make sense? And how's that part of the conversation? And the next part of the conversation is what is the Jewish people in exile? And then he opens up with the discussion of the mitzvahs, fitting each commandment in the Torah into this framework. And thereby you have a holistic worldview. You have the world, the, 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 the way I described it last time is that what they call a worldview achievement, where your way of looking at the world is in tune with what you're doing in the world. When you say a brocha, when you light candles, when you separate challah, it fits into the framework in which he feels the world is. The world isn't this foreign place that I'm acting in, it's part of the story. Same way a football player isn't in a random place, it's in a football pitch. It's a football player. Yeah. No, he does. Not in here, he does. Not in here, he does. Every single, I'm up to, I'm up to, I'm up in my podcast, I'm up to Mitzvah 42. And guess what it is? Guess what it is? Myself. How boring. Not boring. Because out of the six categories of commandments, Trumas and Maestras, like that's really boring, but who cares about that? From his point of view, it's one of the most profound educational moves that the Torah has. There are three points of Maisa we give. Maisa Rishon, Maisa Shani, and Maisa Ani. Three ways that we can misuse our stuff. We can misuse our stuff spiritually, we can misuse our stuff physically, and we can misuse our stuff in relationship to other people. How do I misuse my stuff spiritually? Disregard it for my spiritual purpose. How do I misuse my stuff physically? Either I indulge in the physical or I withdraw myself from the physical in a spiritual way. How do I misuse my stuff in relationship to people? I don't give it to anybody. I'm a miser. My serishon goes to the kohen. That takes care of my spiritual life. My sashani, I eat in a state of sanctity in the temple. And lastly, my sa'ani. I give to the poor. Do you see how it fits in to the education towards love and justice? And thereby, as an individual, I embody that in how. Now, we don't bring Misa anymore. We don't do it quite like that anymore. But we do Chala. And that was last week. But also, I feel like sometimes, and I'm, maybe it's because I don't have anything very well, like sometimes it's like you're hearing like random ones, but like just like random people's Torah was like, what do I even get from this? Like it's kind of just like clarifying what happened. And it's just learning for the sake of Torah, which I think is beautiful. And so it's because we're back in Canada, but like we're back here saying like even those. Like I don't know. I don't know if you would look at it that being that. No, so uh, the purpose of Talmud Torah from his point of view is also going to be a bit different. He's not going to look at like reading Torah as being particularly valuable. It doesn't have an integrated purpose to it. You're not just reading stuff. It has to be a purpose to it. Um, but I think most people would say that like, reading stuff isn't going to be particularly valuable, unless, of course, you're educating yourself towards learning, be able to act as a Jew in the world. So, so it's, it's a more complicated conversation about the purpose and the value of Talmud Torah. But um, yes, you're going to go to Shi'urim and you're going to hear people say things that are going to go in one ear and hopefully fly out the other ear. It's called, um, I think the better way I phrase it, I phrase it, I, I nicked this from someone, but I don't know who I nicked it from, called a Dvar Torah culture. You heard that? You go to a place and they tell you a Dvar Torah? You're almost like expected to say it about Torah. 
It's like some random thing that someone pulled out of a hat. Even if it's based off a commentary, it's like, okay, what am I doing with this? Like, nice, I'm sure it was, but how do I integrate that? There is that, and there's a value to that at some level. But the best type of Torah that you can learn is where you can integrate it. You have your framework, and then you can integrate it. And it doesn't mean you take one person's worldview completely. You'll develop a hashkafa the more you learn. Your hashkafa will be different than your teacher's hashkafa. There will be parts of hash that will appeal to you. And there'll be a part of you will be like, mm. you're, uh, uh, from the language, your chilek in Torah. Unfortunately. From way of saying it. And if you're in way of saying it, what your neshama calls to. If you want to get even more, it's like, in the womb, you learn that particular piece of it. I'm not going to go down that road. But then... Really? The way that you're expressing now. <laughs> oh, no, no, yeah, good. So, wrong, wrong way of it. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Um, but no, so but often when you, when you express ideas, you have to, like, there's, there's, there's religiously loaded language you can use and there's less religiously loaded language you can use. You can say, be an Hashem. Okay, that sounds really dark. I don't want to be anybody's slave. If it is God's slave. But then if I define what I mean by Hashem, and I define what I mean by service to Hashem, it becomes nobling. Because, like, like, also when you say slave, that's more modern, it's just changing. Mm. No, that's a bad thing. I don't want to be a slave. Uh, maybe an Ebed. Yeah. Maybe, a, uh, maybe to work in pursuit. Yeah. But, but if I serve the highest goal, that would be something that. That's why the way Rav Hesh is trying to describe reality. That in no bit, being part of the Jewish people or being part of humanity, you have a purpose. That means, by the way, that's the beauty about this as well. Is, it's, it's not talking Jewish yet. We're up to the letter seven out of 19, and he hasn't even spoken about Jew yet. That's really impressive. That's talking about humanity at this stage. That means anybody reading this is going to be ennobled by this perspective on the world. Did we talk about the reality of the source, right? So I feel like I really do like these like, empowering, but like, I feel like a lot of these are neat, like, maybe have a very different, like... Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I can't help you on that one. Okay. Most people haven't looked... at yeah, he'll say that, he, yes, and he discusses it as a, to, to break the spoiler alert, um, the way he discusses it is he says that, yeah, the reason why people don't look at the world like this today is a product of, no, exile. Uh, we were persecuted so much. I think it's been simplified a lot. It's been simplified to gaining spiritual points, but you're dead. Yeah. Yeah. So he would say, yeah, that's a product of, uh, being part of the world that wanted to kill us the whole time. So because everybody wanted to kill us, we had to resort to prayer and uh, fasting and all these sort of things that we could do. But that's by no means the idea. The way he's describing things is the ideal. The world we live in today is an ideal in comparison to uh, the, uh, the ghettos. Is there a danger? Yeah, for sure. Is there even a value to the ghettos? Perhaps, but it's by no means the ideal. The world we live in today, from this point of view, is the ideal. Why? Because you can live out the mission of a Jew in this world. Which is to show the other nation. Yep. You have the opportunity to. It doesn't mean we do. We have the opportunity to. The way he'll describe it next week is, whether you do your mission or you don't do your mission, Hashem's purposes in the world will be lived out through our existence as a Jewish people, even if we're not doing anything. But how Simple. do we get this, this letter? We didn't. I'm just breaking right. the story. Just but this letter is... Trying to just say that like societies can crumble. So the, the, the way to look at through the lens of history 
is that if we look at history without any Jewish people there, we recognize that this survival doesn't come from power stuff. They eventually fall. If a, a nation is predicated on something more fundamental, it survives. And the only nation that's done that is the Jewish people. Because we're the only thing that kept it's also the only thing that kept us a Jewish people is the fact that we're we're Jewish. We, we kept the Torah. That kept with us throughout history. 